Well, this morning, a week before or a few days before the season of Lent actually begins, we're going to begin our Lenten sermon series. Uh, we're going to begin a series this morning called Back to Basics, Jesus and the Ten Commandments. And this morning, as we spend our time together, I invite you to have your Bibles open to two places in Scripture, Exodus chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 22. Most Bibles nowadays have a little uh, ribbon that we can mark a spot, or we can always use our two fingers, which is an old school way of marking things. Right, Tommy Taylor? That's right. <laughs> Some of us use digital uh, our phones and our digital copies of the Bible, which is very easy to click, paste, cut, and copy. Exodus chapter 20, Matthew chapter 22. Now, this morning, as we, as we investigate, as we begin this series, uh, we want to talk just a little bit, very briefly, about what the season of Lent is all about, because it ties directly into the series on the Ten Commandments. The season of Lent, which kicks off on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday and progresses to the, uh, the uh, Palm Sunday and Holy Week, the season of Lent really is about the basics of the faith. In this season, in these five weeks, we're called back to the basics. We're called back to the basics of who we are. We're sinners, created. And I'm getting a little feedback and ring in my, in my microphone. Can you uh, turn that down just a little bit? Thank you. We're sinners. We're called back to the basics of who we are. We're called back to the basics of who God is. And we're called back to the basics of what God has done. And then, during the season of Lent, in light of these two things, or in light of these things, who we are, who God is, what God has done, we're called back to the basics of Christian faith, repentance and trust. So this season of Lent, we're starting this series uh, a, a week early because we've got some really big things coming up later in March. Uh, so we're starting a, a week early to come back to the basics of the Ten Commandments and of Jesus. And so for this season, we'll, we'll spend time together in Exodus chapter 20 and in various places within the Gospels as Jesus confirms, as Jesus interprets, applies, and fulfills the Ten Commandments. And we're doing this uh, precisely because this is the work of the Lenten season. Self-reflection and repentance as we come face-to-face -face with who we are, as we come face-to-face -face with who God is and what God has done. Today, we look at uh, the first and the tenth commandments, the bookend commandments. I like to call them the twinsies because they reflect so much the same. And here, as we, we look at the first and the tenth commandments, we see this big idea. God's people are to center their lives upon Him. God's people are to desire Him above anything and everything else. And as we look at this this morning, we'll come to understand that this is God's desire set within his moral law, the best way to be human. What we'll see, however, is that we fail. We can't do this. We need help from the outside, which leads us to Jesus. Exodus 20, or let, me, let me back up just one second here. Uh, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we have to pay attention to the context because context is always key to our understanding. And Exodus 20 establishes the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments, what's also referred to as the Decalogue. The context is this. God spoke all these words. 
At the Mount of Sinai, after uh, God called the people of Israel as he led them out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, he took them to the Mount Sinai. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God uh, gathered the people around him, around the mountain. And in chapter 19, he lays out all these very specific things the people were to do and not to do as they prepared to hear from the word, hear from the Lord. And we're told very specifically, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The context is really important for us because we have to recognize to whom God gave these commandments. He gave them to a people that he had constituted by his grace. He gave the commandments to his people that he'd redeemed. And so it is, the moral law of God is for God's people. So before there's any discussion about the appropriateness of having the Ten Commandments displayed in a court of law, and before there's any discussion about whether they should be taught in public schools, and before there's any consideration about how the Ten Commandments might be the backbone of the legal structure of most Western civilizations, we have to recognize God gave these Ten Commandments to God's people for the way God's people especially should behave, the way God's people should live. Now, of course, God's the creator of all that is, right? He's the creator of the universe. And so the law that he gives, the moral law that he gives, as it reveals his character, as it sets a moral standard, absolutely has a universal scope. It applies to everyone everywhere because God's the creator. But they were given in Exodus chapter 20, not to the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amalekites, but to the people of Israel. They were given not to the whole world, but to a specific people for a specific purpose at a specific time. And then when Jesus in the New Testament, in his Gospels, when Jesus affirms, reaffirms, applies, interprets, and fulfills the Old Testament moral law, he gives them to a specific people for a specific purpose. So, therefore, God's People. There's a lot of questions sometimes about whether or not we need the law uh, that we find in the Old Testament, whether or not we need the Ten Commandments. And my response is absolutely. Because in the moral law of God, we see God's character established. We see what God desires of, of his people established. And we're led back to Jesus. Those are basics. That's Linton themes. The Ten Commandments in Exodus and repeated in a variety of manners and ways in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they reveal this moral law of God. They reveal how God's redeemed people are to live, how they're to behave. Jesus interprets, he fulfills, he applies them for his people, and historically, the church has always accepted and affirmed the moral law of God. This is reflected even in our Anglican communion in the 39 articles Specifically, Article 7, which reads in part, No Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, they show us how God expects his people to live. And after they have received the grace of his redeeming work, it shows us our need for ongoing, sanctifying, transforming work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're called to center our lives upon God because we can't. What we need is Jesus to redeem us, 
Jesus to transform us, Jesus to empower us with the Holy Spirit to obey. Now, I think it's uh, absolutely important for us to ask the question. If, if we're saying that primarily the moral law of God is for God's people, the church, how are we doing in keeping that law? I think that's a fair question. It's absolutely true that the world in which we live is a moral mess. It's a, a cat, a, I can't say that word. I sounded like uh, Sylvester the cat there. A catastrophe in which every single one of the Ten Commandments, every single aspect of the moral law of the Creator God is broken on a, frequently, a frequent basis. But I think it's fair to ask the question, in this world of darkness and decay, how are the people of God who are called to be salt preserving how are the people of God who are called to be light, enlightening, how are we doing when it comes to the moral law? The answer is not well at all. Philip Ryken has succinctly pointed out, people are behaving badly, even in church. Today we're looking specifically at the first and the tenth commandments, and we ask the questions of ourselves, who or what is our deepest desire? Who or what do we worship? Who or what is our God? You see, folks, some things are just not meant to be shared. And God will not share his glory. Exodus chapter 20 contains these words, You shall have no other gods before me. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. As the triune God thunders to his redeemed people from the top of Mount Sinai, and as Jesus declares to his opponents and to his disciples, God desires for his people to desire him above and beyond all else. God is to be God. God is to be the one around whom his people center the whole of their being as they trust him for and with everything of their lives. God is the one who is to be worshipped. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, very explicitly stated here in the first commandment, is to be God. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of praise. He alone is worthy of honor and glory. Why can he say that? In the context of the first commandment, in the context of Exodus chapter 20, because he redeemed the people out of Egypt. And how could Jesus say this? Because Jesus is the one who redeems us out of our Egypt, our slavery to sin and death and hell. The first commandment is quite explicit. God alone is to be worshipped. And the tenth commandment, the bookend, it reflects very much the same heart. Let me explain this just a little bit. In Exodus chapter 20, right around verse 17, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then Jesus says in Matthew 22, A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Looking very specifically at the commandment, the tenth commandment, the use of the term covet is important for us. Coveting is a disordered desire. It is idolatry. Coveting is a disordered desire which harms others. Right? It isn't just wanting something like what another has. It isn't just saying, you know what, you got really great shoes, I want to have a pair of shoes just like that. No, coveting is saying, you know what, Jeff Williams has the most amazing pair of shoes right now, and I want those shoes. And I don't care if they fit me or not, I'm taking those shoes. That's coveting. 
That's why God says, you're not gonna, you, you are not to covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife because coveting is this internal condition of the heart that sets a desire upon something that may be good, but it becomes the object of our worship. And then to the detriment of the person who owns it, we seize it for ourselves. That's coveting. Coveting that leads to harmful action. That coveting which can lead us to break the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth commandments. Coveting is in the end a violation of the first. Because in coveting, we create for ourselves a God. We create for ourselves something that we call good. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it this way, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. And where your heart is, there's your idol. Where your heart is, there is your God. Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so coveting stuff, desiring stuff that belongs to another, is fundamentally a violation of at least two commandments, the tenth and the first, the twins, the bookends. Desiring stuff with all of our hearts is idolatry. What we spend our time and money upon, what we love, what we focus our hearts upon, what we desire, that is our God. But God's people, in, in Exodus and in, in Matthew, God's people are to center their lives upon God. God's people are to center their lives upon God. God is to be their greatest desire. He called the people of Israel out of Egypt. He redeemed it. And in his redemption of Israel, he formed it into a nation. He constituted it. This is an expression in the Old Testament of the gospel. God doing for a people what they could not do for themselves, and God doing that brought them into a relationship with him. This relationship is, is one of grace. It's codified with a covenant. There is an expectation of behavior after having received the grace, but to receive the grace, there's nothing to be done. Israel couldn't save itself. It wasn't even Israel's idea to have Yahweh save them from Egypt. It was God's idea. It was God's initiative. It was God's work. Having brought them out, having redeemed them, he can now say, I have created you. Now live this way. Be my people. God has every right to do that because he's God. And he did the work of redemption. There is the gospel first, and then there is the law. There is the expectation, the standard of behavior. Freedom, really. Freedom is first, and then how do you live within that freedom? That's the law. But is it realistic? That's another great question for us to ask, right? We look at the moral law of God, and we say to ourselves, can we really do this? You look at the Old Testament, you look at the history of the people of Israel, and you realize even the ones who lived through the Exodus, the ones who saw the plagues, the ones who experienced the night of the first Passover, the ones who walked through the Red Sea with walls of water around them. Can you imagine the fish looking out at them? <laughs> even those who walked out into the wilderness, even those who came to the foot of Mount Sinai, even those who heard the voice of God. And as Dorothy read for us this morning, they trembled at his voice. Even they failed to love God with all their heart mind, body, and soul. In just a few short chapters after the giving of the Ten Commandments, Israel has begun to craft for themselves golden bowls, a statue, 
By Numbers chapter 25, the people of Israel began to worship Baal, an idol. And the entire history of Israel is bound up with fits and starts of worshiping Yahweh, their Redeemer, and other non-gods. So can we really do this? Israel couldn't. And before we get too hard on Israel, as if we're above doing that which they had done, let's recognize something that Israel is not exceptional in this failure. It's a human thing to worship, and it's a fallen, sinful human thing to worship with disordered desire, the wrong thing. We're created to worship. We're created to worship something, and we will. Every single one of us will worship something. And if we're not worshiping the one true God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt and who has offered redemption in Jesus Christ, then we will create a God to fill that void. John Calvin talks about our hearts being idol factories. We make them here. And if our hearts are not aligned towards God, they will be aligned towards something we call God. Anything of creation can and does become an idol. Common idols in our modern world include sex, power, and money. That's only three. Mark Twain reflected on our human tendency to make financial power, to make money our chief desire in God when he quipped, what is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Just honestly if we can, honestly if we must. Who is God? The one and only true Money is God, gold and greenbacks and stock, father, son, and ghosts of same, three persons in one. These are the true and only God, mighty and supreme. How he survived the lightning strike, I'm not sure. And so it is. Our modern idols may be less grotesque than those of days gone by, but they are no less bloodthirsty or deceiving. You see, what God promises, freedom, redemption, salvation, Idols also promise, but God is the only one who can actually succeed, actually give, actually come through in keeping his promise. The idols that we create, the the money, the power, the sex, whatever we turn to, these idols that we create promise us freedom, but in the end, what we find is that we're only enslaved to them all the more. That's because we tend to think that freedom, to be free, is to live without an external constraint. We think that we have in freedom the agency to do what we want, to be what we want, to declare who we are, to live according to our desires. But our desires are broken. They are disordered, and they deceive us. A French academic by the name of René Girard has said, desire turns into a very humiliating, painful, and disagreeable experience. The strategy of desire consists in setting up the dazzling illusion of self-sufficiency. The idols that we make, the false gods that we worship, promise freedom. But in the end, this desire for self-determination, for self-sufficiency, is an illusion, as dazzling as it may be. And in the end, what we find are the idols that we've created being turned to dust in our hands. These things cannot save us. They cannot fulfill. They cannot give the freedom that they promise because we can't save ourselves. We cannot fulfill. We can't give the freedom that we, pro- we were promised. Folks, we can't be free, quite frankly, because we don't even know what freedom truly is. Australian pastor and professor John Dixon has written that freedom cannot be the capacity to do whatever we choose, 
because some choices are destructive and enslaving for ourselves and others. Freedom is surely better defined as the power to become what I am made for. And that brings us back to the Ten Commandments. Made by God and made for God, true freedom is only found in living the way God has established as true and right. And that true freedom starts with the very basic idea that only God is worthy of our deepest desires, that only God is worthy of being at the centers of our beings and our lives, that only God is worthy of worship. Really, what we see here is that in the giving of the law, in the creation of the people, in the giving of the moral law, what God is doing is revealing the true and best way to be human. In covenant relationship with him, living according to his moral standard. And this is where we come to the painful, the hard part, really, of examining God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. Because this is where we come to the part where we say, how am I doing? The moral law of God in revealing his character and his expectations for his people shows us the best way to be human, what we are made for, but it also shows us our failure. It also shows us our need for Jesus. So far this morning, we've seen that God's moral law reveals to how God expects his people to live. God expects his people in Jesus to center their lives around him, that we would desire him above and beyond all else. And yet, as we've seen, the world cannot do this, and believers themselves struggle with this. There is then, in God's moral law, a pedagogical use. It leads us, it drives us toward our deepest need, the need for Jesus and life in him. Through God's moral law, we're led back to the basic need that we all have, the need to be redeemed, the need to be transformed, the need to be empowered. We're led back to Jesus. Jesus is the one who redeems us. He is the one through whom we are forgiven and we are justified. As we believe in him, as we trust in Jesus, we idolaters who have violated the first and the tenth commandments are justified. That is, we are accounted as righteous in God's sight. This is what theologians refer to as the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This means that Christ's uh, alien righteousness is by God accounted as our own. Not because we've earned it, but because in his grace we've received it through faith. Theologian John Murray explains justification is a constitutive act. We're created into God's people through justification, whereby the righteousness of Christ is imputed. The external becomes our own to our account, and we are accordingly accepted as righteous in God's sight. Why? Because God loves us. How? Because it's God's way of doing things. How do we do this? Through faith. That's it. We need Jesus because we need his active righteousness credited to our account by grace through faith. Jesus is the only individual in all of world history who has ever kept the moral law of God with perfection, and that's not even close. And so we need his cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and we need his active obedience given to us to be made righteous. Only Jesus is the one who redeems us, who makes us his people. But then uh, we have another problem. Uh, having been forgiven by Jesus, I still have a disordered desire for something else. Well, Jesus can transform us. 
In fact, Jesus is the one who redeems and Jesus is the one who transforms through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Freed from the penalty of sin by grace through faith, believers in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit that we may be transformed into the very image of the one who saves us, into the image of Jesus. We prayed this morning that we may be changed into his likeness from glory to glory, that our desires might be reordered, that our hearts might be transformed so that which is disordered becomes rightly ordered, that we may desire to desire God above all else. How do we do that? Through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. There is an internal reality to the indwelling Holy Spirit that our desires begin to be shifted and transformed. And so we need Jesus because we've broken the commandments. We need salvation. We need redemption. Because we break the commandments, we need hearts that desire rightly. That means we need transformation. That means we need what Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. And there, then, we actually have to put that desire into practice, right? If our hearts are rightly ordered and we're trying, we want to order our lives around God, then we actually have to do that. But can we do that on our own? Do we have the ability? No. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. See, let's see what the moral law is doing to us. It's driving us back to God. It's driving us back to Jesus. It's driving us back to the one who redeems us, driving us back to the one who has the power to transform us into his very image, driving us back to the one who gives us the Holy Spirit that we might have the ability to obey. Having been redeemed by God through Jesus Christ, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit for the transformation of our desires and characters and to empower us to actively obey God's moral law. So that walking in step with the Holy Spirit, living in prayerful dependence upon the indwelling Holy Spirit, we may actually center our lives upon God and love our neighbor as ourselves. There in the grace of Jesus, the one who redeems, transforms, and empowers, we may actually keep the moral law. No other way is possible, but nothing less is expected. In all of this, there is grace In all of this, the exposure of our sin and God's moral law and the leading of sinners back to Jesus for forgiveness, for ongoing transformation, for empowerment, in all of this, grace reigns supreme. And so let this be a Lenten discipline. Allow the weight of the moral law to come to bear upon us, upon you, upon me, with prayerful honesty, asking God to reveal how we're doing and who we're worshiping. And in light of what God reveals to us through his word and through prayer, let us repent and seek Jesus. Because this is the wonderful truth of the gospel. This is the good news. We are loved. The truth is we are sinners. The greater truth is that God is willing and able to forgive us. In Jesus, God will redeem us. In Jesus, God will transform us. In Jesus, God will empower us that we might then live the way he has called us to live under his moral law. God's people are to center their lives upon him. And because of Jesus, the redeemer, the transformer, and the empowerer, we can do that. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for your law where you reveal your character. Thank you for your law where you reveal your expectations. And thank you for your law that leads us back to Jesus, the one who gives us life. 
As we stand together and offer you our praise and worship through song, come and be glorified and be at work through the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of Jesus more and more, to empower us to obey and be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship.